0: Good evening. Hi, I'm Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and um, we're delighted to see so many of you here uh, to learn about urban farms, and maybe some of you are already urban farmers. The Pratt Library has uh, started this partnership with Baltimore Greenworks. It's my pleasure to introduce one of the Baltimore Greenworks Board members Ariane de Bremond and she is going to introduce our very special guest this evening. Ariane
1: Good evening everyone. My name is Ariane de Bremen and I'm on the board of Baltimore Greenworks. And for those of you who don't aren't familiar with us, um, we're a nonprofit organization um, that strives to embrace Baltimore's diverse communities, offering programming that educates on sustainable ways of living. We do a lot of different activities. For the last six years, Baltimore Greenworks has brought the Baltimore community the um, EcoFest and Baltimore Green work Week, and then about two years ago, we started um, adding some different things to our programs, including EcoBall, and um, last year, uh, just as, um, we, were, we were just talking about the Sustainable Speaker Series that we launched with um, Michael Pollan um, here at the Enoch Pat Free Library last year. Tonight, once again, in partnership with the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and with thanks um, to them and to our sponsors, the Annie Casey Foundation, Lawrence um, Incorporated, and the Living Classrooms Foundation, we're really honored to welcome Novella Carpenter to Baltimore. She's the author of Farm City, The Education of an Urban Farmer. Um, And this is a book in which she tells the story of how she turned a vacant lot in one of the worst neighborhoods in Oakland, California into a working mini farm, complete with vegetables, herbs, Chicken ducks, and bees. Uh, her success led to raising rabbits and pigs as well, plus a month-long plan to eat from her own garden. Carpenter's Farm is now 10 years old, and her neighbors still think she's crazy, although after reading her book, I'm not convinced that she's the only crazy one in the neighborhood. Um, LAUGHTER she grew up in Idaho and Washington, graduated from the University of Washington, and studied with Michael Pollan at Berkeley's uh, Graduate School of Journalism. Her writing has appeared at Salon.com, Sever.com, SFGate.com, and Mother Jones. And just to kind of bring us back to Baltimore, um, it seems like Novella's been very busy weekly, uh, very busy lately. Um, just a few weeks ago, Penguin Press released Farm City and Paperback, and she's been traveling for her new release whilst managing to split her beef hives and also requeen. In the process, and as a beekeeper myself, who drove down from Manchester, Maryland last week to the city with a hive of bees in the back of my car that had sprung a leak, um, I can really appreciate the challenge of balancing those different parts of being an urban dweller. Um, And so speaking of animals in city neighborhoods, my city neighborhood in Baltimore has a covenant created in 1897 um, that prohibits the raising of farm animals within its jurisdiction. But fortunately, they did forget to include bees. And although after reading Novella's book, I have to admit that I have been thinking about getting that covenant adjusted. Um, many people would be scandalized for sure, but as Novella writes about it, re urban landscapes in these novel ways with chickens and bees is yet another way of forming a sense of community in the city. And that's really important. Fortunately, we have an active and productive farming community in the greater Baltimore area, and I think an incipient and growing urban farming movement. Tomorrow at a Baltimore City school, my son will be lunching with his classmates on a bowl of greens that were planted and harvested from the schoolyard. So we're on our way, guys, um, just to the few of the many things that are going on in this city, and Novella, thanks for coming to Baltimore to lend us your energies and inspire us with your words.
0: Thanks for that great introduction, and it's great to be here and have so many people here. It's so great. Hi, Baltimore. Um, how many of you guys are growing your own food? Oh, my God. Nice. That's awesome. Congratulations. Um, that's, really, that's really cool. So um, this is my first slide that I like to show people, um, partially because it proves how crazy I am, because note that I'm wearing flip-flops. <laughs> that is so wrong, um, those pigs are just going to chew my feet off, um, but they didn't, thank God, they were nice, um, so these are, uh, this was when I was um, raising pigs in Oakland, I've since stopped doing that, um, and um, partially because I think I, when I look back on this time, I was sort of crazy, I was like, had hit bottom in terms of my mental um, facilities, Um and, uh, but I didn't know it at the time, of course, like any good crazy person. Um, and so what I'm going to talk about tonight is how this happened. How did I get here? This is scary. Um, and so as a warning to you, um, and also just as a, a sort of just a funny story. Um, so I started off, um, I moved to a Ghost Town Farm, uh, or to Ghost Town, which is a neighborhood in Oakland, um, in um, the two, 2003. Um, and this is where it is. It's um, it's not that giant, big green spot space. That's actually a. Unfortunately, a school that went, uh, you know, under, um, and the farm is actually where the arrow is there, um, and so you can see it's pretty urban. It's right next to a highway and um, BART tracks, which is our, which is our, um, which is our subway system. Um, and um, when I moved into the apartment, my boyfriend and I were, you know, our neighborhood is called Ghost Town because there's all these abandoned buildings and boarded-up houses and abandoned lots. Um, and so we thought, you know, because we had been doing some farming in Seattle. Um, why not try to do it here on this um, little piece of land? So it looked like this. Um, this is a very old picture. This is actually from a photograph. Do you guys remember what photographs used to be? You'd hold them in your hand. Um, <laughs> and it's a kind of a bad scan. But um, this is my friend Lana, um, which is anal spelled backwards, um, was how she, would <laughs> how she would introduce herself. Um, and she was very funny. Um, she was a kind of an artist, and... Um, she lived in the warehouse across the street and had a speakeasy. And this is part of what I love about Oakland, um, is that there's, although there is a sense of abandonment or things that are falling apart, um, and maybe you have ex- experienced this too in Baltimore, um, there's such a great community of people, um, and that's... That was what kept me um, continuing farming and, and living there. Um, so we ended up um, moving, this, uh, moving all the uh, you know, weeds off of the, of the plot and testing the soil, which is really important to do if you're going to do any urban farming in the city because oftentimes there's lead in the soil, that kind of thing. Um, and then now this is what it looks like, although mostly I have to say... I don't, I'm not a person that spends time taking pictures of my garden, you know? Um, and so I like this picture because I took it because there was some sort of drug bust going on and I wanted to get <laughs> shots of the police just in case. Um, so there you go. Um, and this is the garden just sort of an a, as an afterthought. Um, but it's um, what we found out when we cu- cut down the weeds was that a lot of um, the, the lot was actually a big concrete slab. And so we needed to build raised beds. And so that's, what, that's what's going on there. Um, we found, my boyfriend and I would go around and um, find pieces of wood and put them together and, and make a box. I learned how to use a Makita. Um, and then we would go up into the hills where the rich folks live and get their manure, not their manure, their horse's manure <laughs> and um, it was um, composted down in this giant pile and we'd go collect and, um, and it actually made really good medium for growing um, food so that was great. Um, now, and when I lived in Seattle I had been a beekeeper um, I got really interested in, um, in raising bees, partially because it's such a romantic idea, right? These beautiful bees, and you have honey, and they're pollinating your fruit. Um, and they actually are what I call the gateway urban farm animal, um, because they're so easy to raise. You can go on vacation, like right now, they don't care I'm gone. They're like, oh, her? That person that comes every once in a while to steal stuff from us? Um, we're glad she's gone. Um, And so that's how beekeeping can become a really great thing to do in the city. And also, a lot of times, you know, like she was saying, is that, you know, there isn't a covenant against beekeeping. And it's something that many people can do even with a small backyard, just to sort of sell it finally, um, is because they can forage up to five-mile radius. So they go all over, they go and get flowers from the park and all of that stuff, and then they come back and make honey, and then you steal it from them. Um, So that's great. Um, Then... Um, what happened is, I, um, there's, this, there's this law in America that you can basically send livestock through the mail. So you, you get this box, and okay, check it out. Yeah, this happens to me regularly, I know. The kids are like, oh my God. So um, the little golden one right here, that is a turkey poult, right? It's got the little pimple on its head, and it is seriously like a chick on acid. Like, they are just like, whoa you know, just a little slower than the other chicks. Um, but I just learned to love them as well. Um, so, uh, so anyway, this is, this is how this starts, this mania, okay? Remember the pig picture, okay? So you're seeing a couple of steps before that happened. Um, and I'm just going to read a part uh, from my book, um, Farm City. And um, just to give you a taste about what was going on in my mind. As I fiddled with the door to our apartment, the new box of fowl tucked under my arm, I recognized that I was descending deeper into the realm of the underground economy. Now that I had been in California for a few years, I felt ready for what seemed like the next logical progression, something I had never dared in the soggy Northwest, meat birds. Meat birds. I felt a bit nuts, yes, but I also felt great People move to California to reinvent themselves They give themselves new names, they go to yoga Pretty soon they take up surfing or Thai kickboxing or astral healing Or witch camp It's true what they say, California, the land of fruits and nuts (laughs) Do you know that when I read this in California, no one laughs? laughs? They don't laugh, but I'm glad you guys did. Um, In Northern California, one is encouraged to raise his freak flag proudly and often. Now that I was taking it to the next level, some might say I had been swept up by the Bay Area's mantra, repeated ad nauseum, to eat fresh, local, free-range critters. At farmer's markets in the Bay Area, and there's one every day, It isn't uncommon to overhear farmers chatting with consumers about how the cow from which which their steaks were harvested had been fed, where their stewing hens ranged, and the view from the sheep pen that housed the lamb that was now ground up and laid out on a table, decorated with nasturtium blossoms. (laughs) Prices correspond with quality of meat, and Alice Waters assures us that only the best ingredients will make the best meals. But as a poor scrounger with three low paying jobs and no health insurance, I usually couldn't afford the good stuff. Since I liked eating quality meat and have always had more skill than money, I decided to take matters into my own hands. One night, after living in our ghost town apartment for a few years, I clicked my mouse over various meat bird packages offered by Murray McMurray. They sold day old ducks, quail, pheasant, turkeys, and geese through the mail. They also sold bargain-price combinations. (laughs) The barnyard combo, the fancy duck package, the turkey assortment. (laughs) These packages, I had thought, might offer a way to eat quality meat without breaking the bank, but I had never killed anything before, blithely ignoring this minor detail. (laughs) I settled on the homesteader's delight, which was two turkeys, 10 chickens, two geese, and two ducks for $42. And that's sort of what it looks like. I bought my poultry package with the click of a mouse and paid for it with a credit card. It was only after the post office delivered the box that I realized that one can't just buy a farm animal like a book or a CD. What I now held in my hands was going to involve a hell of a lot of hard work. So I install them into a brooder, which is this, um, I know, further cuteness. Sorry about that. Um, It's a bright light, and it keeps them warm, and they're in this little box with newspaper and stuff. And my boyfriend walks out, and he's sort of like, oh, God, Novella, what is she doing now? The baby birds were home, warm and safe. The chicks scratched at their yellow feed, just like our big chickens out back did. Sometimes they'd stop mid-scratch, and feeling the warmth of the brooder light would fall asleep standing up. The puffy gray goslings curled their necks around the yellow sleeping ducklings. A Hallmark card had exploded in my living room. I mean, am I wrong? Look how cute that is. It's like should be a poster that says, like, love. (laughs) I called my mom. A brooder box full of fowl was something that woman could appreciate. She had once been a hippie homesteader in Idaho. Listen to this, I said, and held the phone near the box. A hundred little peeps. Oh, my God, she said. Three turkeys, three ducks, two geese, and ten chickens, I crowed. I watched the chicks and poults moving around the brooder, pooping, scratching, pooping. Turkeys, do you remember Tommy Turkey, she asked. I didn't, but the photo in our family album had stuck with me. My older sister, Rihanna, in a saggy cloth diaper, being chased by the advancing figure of a giant white turkey, (laughs) Tommy. Mom told us about Tommy every time we got out the old photo album. Well, he was mean as hell and he would chase you guys. I looked out the window while my mom described the smokehouse that she and my dad had built. Bill had made it downstairs by then. He was out front tinkering with our car. I had warned him about my meat, meat, meat bird purchase and he had been excited about the prospect of homegrown meat. But now that he had seen the baby birds, fragile, tiny, he seemed a bit skeptical. My mom was going on. Tommy grew to be an enormous size, she said and as back-to-the-land hippies, she and my dad had been very pleased. They didn't encounter any predator problems that year, and butchering him was a cinch. But disaster did hit. The smokehouse burned to the ground while they were smoking the turkey. (laughs) Oh no, I groaned. Life was like that, she said glumly. I felt sorry for her. My mom's stories usually involve some heroic hippie farm action. I hadn't heard this part of the story before, but I knew that bad things had happened. Her voice brightened. Even though the smokehouse burned down, we did manage to salvage the turkey. (laughs) What do you mean, I asked. Well, we dug through the charred wood, and there it was, a perfectly cooked turkey. (laughs) I brushed off all the cinders and served him for dinner. She paused and smacked her lips It was the best turkey I've ever had, she declared (laughs) We said our goodbyes and I hung up the phone I glanced into the cozy chick brooder I had to remind myself that Though they were cute, these baby birds would eventually become my dinner Thanksgiving in particular was going to be intense I imagined the killing scene A butcher block, an axe Three giant Tommy turkeys I had known since Poulthood I wasn't sure I could bring myself to do it. But the conversation with my mom had left me emboldened for my foray into killing and eating animals I had raised myself. This urge was clearly part of my cultural DNA. I wondered if this would prove it I could have it both ways, to sop up the cultural delights of the city while simultaneously raising my own food. In retrospect though, I wondered why I thought my experience would be any less disastrous than my parents. Ooh, little foreshadowing there. Um, so <laughs> these are my chickens. Um, these, are, these are actually a batch of chickens. I don't have these exact ones anymore. Um, they come and go, as they do often. Um, these are dirty eggs, which I like to show people, because they think, if you look at any sort of Martha Stewart magazine, that they just arrive like totally clean right out of the chicken's bottom. And, um, and the big one, the big dirtiest one, is a turkey egg. Um, I had this fantasy of raising these um, turkeys doing turkey breeding for a while, and Turkey sex is kind of fun to watch, um, but it never worked out for me for mine but um, so these are bourbon reds. Um, this is a bourbon red in the front and then a royal palm in the back and um, These are a second batch or a third batch of turkeys that I raised. My first um, were called Harold and Maud. Um, they were a couple <laughs> um, and then these this is um, um, Edith and uh, oh, what's like and Barney is that his name? The you know, what is it? Archie, Archie. Edith and Archie. Thank you. Totally brain brain spaz there, um, but there they are. Um, so they were very gregarious and turkeys, you know, they should have been maybe the American bird um, because they are like Americans they're curious, they want to know what's going on, they would escape constantly (laughs) Um, and then I'd find them out walking on an MLK way you know, just hanging out with everyone you know, making the scene Um, so they were were really great to have Um, what I learned from raising turkeys however, was that in fact, as a small scale farmer you know, just two turkeys or something I would break the bank. It was horrible. I was you know I did a cost analysis. I spent one hundred dollars to raise one turkey um, so that doesn 't make sense, right? I could have just bought a really good turkey um, and uh, so what I started to do was um, I started to think about how I was going to you know, channel the waste stream of the city. Because kind of like, why am I farming in the city? What does it mean? Um, and part of that is, um, is uh, checking out the food that is thrown away all the time, every single day. Um, from grocery stores. It's, totally, it's not like something maybe you would want to eat, but an animal, it would be okay. Um, and This actually used to happen when I started raising rabbits. Um, I know, really cute as well. Um, and they um, and and they 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 sort of led me down this path where Bill and I one night were in Chinatown, and we opened up this green bin, which is like our composting system in in Oakland and uh, we were like, "Look at all that bok choy! The rabbits would love it, So we started bringing home all these um, you know things from the dumpster and also spent stuff from the garden as well, lettuce and that kind of thing um, and then of course, you know. I had to had to deal with, with, you know, eating the rabbits, which was a big deal. Um, and a lot of people are like, rabbits are pets, so why are you such a monster novella? Um, and then to them, <laughs> they're like, it's like eating a cat, right? I'm like, no, because um, I grew up eating rabbit. My parents were back to the land hippies. I mean, that was like a lot of them raised rabbits. Um, and my my sister lives in France now and has, you know, They eat tons of rabbit in France and in Italy so anyway there's a whole tradition of rabbit eating so don't think I'm a monster Um, but yeah this was not a pet this rabbit was not a pet Um, and why don't I still have that pink poncho that's my question that is cute (laughs) okay here's where we were going with this right so swine auction has anyone been to one anyone here a couple there's a couple people right doesn't it rule isn't it so cool? It's like the little pleasures in life that you would never know. You should take a date to a swine auction because <laughs> usually what it is is like little kids like 4-H or whatever and they bring these little pigs out and they herd them around the, you know, the, the ring and then the auctioneers like 100, 200, 300, 400 and you're just like, yeah, I want that one. And I, that's kind of what happened. We went to the swine auction. We weren't sure we were going to get pigs and then we came home with two. Um, And um, these are little weanlings, they're about 35 pounds. Um, And we were the only people in, you know, we had to travel far away into the deep north, northern California, Mendocino County to get them. And we were the only people in a station wagon there to pick up our piglets. (laughs) Everybody else had the big trucks and like the whole town, I kid you not, stopped to watch us load these pigs (laughs) into the station wagon. Um, and the reason why people have trucks and they bring them for their pigs is because the odor was so horrible even this adorable pig stunk so bad um, so amazing things you learn as an urban farmer wow, pigs stink, good, okay um, so they grew to be very large um, and oh, oh, I was going to read this part where, um, where how we were like, what were they feeding them these are the pigs, they got really big um, here's what happened when we took the little piglet home. Back in the ghetto, I herded the pigs into their new home. <clears throat> it was just getting dark. The air felt heavy, but it wasn't raining. That morning, in anticipation of the piglets, I'd enhanced the chicken area with a bucket filled with water and a feeding trough made from the same metal wash tub I'd once used to dip and pluck my turkey, Harold. Safely behind their closed gate of their yard, the pigs seemed mildly curious, but far from geniuses stomping out Morse code with their cloven feet, thank God. They ran around kicking up sawdust as they had in the ring a few hours ago. The pigs were both red durocks. Durocks, sometimes called Jersey Reds, are known for quality fat production. These pigs had, even in their young age, the classic arched backs that one often sees in profile on meat company labels. They had curly tails, but it was not a tight curl, and I noticed later that they wagged them when they were happy with a certain food item, or the sun was shining just right, or I was scratching their backs with a stick. The tails then did convey emotion. As they checked their surroundings, they made quiet grunting sounds. I had wondered if the city's noises, a police helicopter circling the hood, someone yelling at the junkyard dogs next door, would be a shock to their system. They had, after all, lived in deep country, all trees and pastures. But if they were disturbed by the city's smells and sounds, they made no sign of it. Pigs, I was glad to see, were not very sensitive. Bill and I looked at the pigs newly installed as they nosed around. Then they stood in front of the gate and smiled up at us expectantly. We read their minds, where's the pig chow? On cue, we jumped in our car and raced over to Chinatown. That night, for the first time ever, Bill and I threw open the dumpsters with our hearts and minds. Will they eat, we wondered, these soggy pieces of Chinese donut? I discovered yes. (laughs) These chunks of leftover duck, which includes the head? Yes. (laughs) Wontons and dumplings covered somehow with frosting? Yeah. (laughs) Bill and I anxiously unloaded our two buckets of slop from the car. We had never collected such a disgusting assortment of salty and sweet meat and vegetable. But pigs, I had heard, were omnivorous, and so we were respecting that. <laughs> when we walked through the gate to the backyard, we were greeted by two grunts, one deep and demanding, the other soft, questioning. I hefted a bucketful of Chinatown into the washtub trough. The pigs began feeding before the second bucket was empty, so I ended up pouring a load of grapes and wontons over their heads and watched it bounce off their shoulders and land on the ground their focus was amazing while they ate the pigs let out small sighs of approval their lip smacking was audible at times they would stop chewing and simply suck up the juices from the trough through their nostrils They were the best dinner guests ever. (laughs) The pigs stopped eating for a moment and gazed up at us. Their mouths moved continuously. Their chins were smeared with frosting and grease. Now that I thought of it, these pigs had probably never had food like this before. They had probably only had their mother's milk, a few handfuls of pig chow, and maybe a rotten apple. Now they were eating Chinese like good urban pigs. <laughs> <laughs> so, like good urban pigs, they got really fat. Um, and we actually stopped, we upgraded them. Um, we stopped going to Chinatown. Partially because we live in the Bay Area and our pigs became food snobs, like everybody who lives in the Bay Area. And um, we started going to organic restaurants. We were like, why not? They have, they're throwing stuff out too. And so Bill and I would find ourselves at night cruising around, you know, to these really nice, like, wood-fired oven pizza places and Italian, fine Italian dining joints and um, running, you know, into the dumpsters and grabbing as much food as we could. And... The pigs really ate a lot. Like, it became kind of like a part-time job for us, just finding enough food for them to eat. Um, At the end of their days, um, we were getting nine buckets of food every day for them. Yeah, and they were still hungry. They'd, like, polish it off and then look back at me like, where's the rest? Um, So... Um, one of the things that happened while I was doing this major dumpster diving is um, I was caught in the dumpster, as you might imagine. Um, and it was sort of like, uh, excuse me, ma'am, you know, this man in like an Italian suit, and he smells really good, and I smell really bad. Um, what are you doing in our dumpster? Why are you stealing from us? And I'm like, well, first of all, you threw this away. And second of all, I have two pigs, okay? They are hungry. <laughs> so don't tell me I can't take this. Um, and the man was very funny, he was, he laughed and was like, oh, very good, very good, good story. Um, <laughs> and then he said, you know, you should come by um, the restaurant and meet Chris, who's our, who's our chef, um, you know, during the day. And I was like, why? And he said, oh, well, you know, he used to be, he is, or he is a trained Italian chef. He lived in Italy um, and learned how to um, butcher pigs. And um, so maybe you guys will strike up a friendship of some sort. Um, and so I was like, okay, great, great, great. And so one day, and and you know, you got to remember, I was sort of like adventurous spirit. I thought, yeah, I'm gonna like put this stuff in the, f- you know, freezer, my tiny freezer. Like, where is the pork gonna go? Um, and so I started to panic a little bit, you know. Uh, and then I would tell people like, yeah, I'm gonna make prosciutto. And then I'm like, how? What is prosciutto? I don't know. Yeah. Gonna- <laughs> Um, and so I thought, wow, Chris Lee might have an answer for me. So I go to his restaurant, I put on clean clothes, kind of clean clothes, and, um, and, I, and I introduce myself and the first thing I say to him is like, I love your dumpster, and, um, <laughs> which is a great way to ingratiate yourself to any restaurateur. Um, and, um, and then we actually started talking. And while we talked, we realized that we liked each other. Um, and he incredibly invited me to do an apprenticeship at his restaurant. So he would teach me all of his tricks that he knows about making salumi. So he would teach me how to make copa and salami and sausages and all this stuff. Um, so I did, I went to the restaurant and, um, and I learned all those things. Um, and then when the day came to take our pigs to slaughter, um, I, um, I brought my biggest pig to him and he broke it down Italian style, which is really incredible to see. Um, it's just using only small knives, and at one point he just used one little saw thing. Um, but it was an amazing thing to watch. Um, and we made prosciutto, so I got to learn how to make prosciutto. Um, and that whole thing was just an amazing experience. Um, now the next slide might disturb you, so I'm sorry if this I'm kind of prepped you for it. Um, So these are the pigs' heads, I know. If anyone can't stand it, I'll change it. In San Francisco, I had to take the slide down. Are you guys okay? Just let me know. Just get the barf bags out. Where are they? (laughs) Um, No, but the reason I have, do you want me to take it off? Is it okay? You okay? All right. Um, The reason I have this picture here is because um, partially, I think the pigs look optimistic in this picture. That's the first thing. (laughs) you got to remember, these pigs were eating good, okay? They're eating better than all of us. And they were, at the end of the life, we sort of were like, we're going to clean them out. We're going to give them peaches, you know, like for a whole week. So they ate peaches and ricotta for the last part of their life, okay? And they're like, what's next? What could be the next delightful thing that's going to happen? <laughs> um, but also because, um, because Chris was like, get the heads. I'm like, really? Get the heads? Um, get the heads. So I brought the heads to him. And we made, um, you, you spent all this time, you spent six months raising these pigs. How can you waste some part of it? Um, so we brought the heads in. We made this amazing head cheese, Soprasetta. And it was amazing. It was delicious. It was so good. Um, and and it, was, it was a beautiful thing. So I was glad to use all the parts of the pig. Um, and so we made salami we made prosciutto, copa, and all of those things um, and one of the things that I realized about keeping pigs is that um, especially two pigs that were 300 pounds was that um, you know in a lot of ways you become like the animal that you keep, okay so Bill and I, we were like no joke we would see someone like throw like a McDonald's hamburger on the ground and we'd die for it you know <laughs> we'd be like, that pigs will love that um and at the same way, it's you are what you eat. And so when we harvested the pigs, we had so much pork. And people are like, are you going to do pigs again? And I'm like, oh, no. Because we got fat. We ate so much pork. And this is a picture of the salami. Bill and I went on a road trip. And we brought some of the salami with us. And we'd find ourselves driving down the road just like biting into the salami. <laughs> like It was just so, there was so much pork. It was crazy. Um, So there you go. I'm not going to raise pigs anymore. Um, However, this is my goat, Orla, Orla May. She was born on the farm. Um, Part of what I started to realize with, um, you know, keeping a a lot of animals um, and doing animal husbandry is I started to feel like the witch in Hansel and Gretel, where I'm like, is that one ready to eat? You know, and um, I felt, you know, that's messed up. So I felt weird about it, and so I thought, what could I raise? What could I possibly raise? It won't be like that. Of course, dairy goats. Um, so these are Nigerian dwarf goats. Um, and this is Orla. She must be like an hour old. She still has, like, placenta on her um, face. <laughs> um, and then these are, yeah, so they grow up, and they're so adorable. Um, and the cool thing about goats, keeping milk goats, I've had them for two years now, is that, you know, you freshen, you get new goats, their babies have babies, and then you can spread the love with other people. Um, this is um, a friend of mine, Abney Ramsey. She lives, like, ten blocks from me. So she came over, and she was like, I'm interested in goats, and you're kind of like, cool, check it out. Um, and then you have, like, a little goat club. Um, <laughs> you know, because, like, it's kind of like having kids. You just want to sit around and talk about goats. Um... And actually what happened with Abeneh and I, we actually started a farm together. Um, she had a family that was interested in doing a, um, a farm out, just a little bit outside of Oakland. And we thought, let's get more goats. Um, so, so there we are. And so now I'm just going to switch gears a little bit. Because um, a lot of people will, ha- will want to know things about other, other f- urban farms that I've seen and other systems that work. Um, this is my friend Patrick in Portland, Oregon. Um, where he keeps um, chickens cooperatively. He had neighbors that got mad at him for having chickens. And so he decided to start an egg collective. So he, with 10 other people, owned these, a big group. I think it's 25 chickens. And then they share duties between feeding and putting them away and cleaning out the coop and all that stuff. So it's just another model. You don't have to be totally crazy like me and, you know, just Start something in your backyard like that. You can really work together. And now that I've now that I've experienced the pigs, I think I would want to do that with pigs if I ever did it. Um, So everyone would be, you know, have a job and collect their scraps for the week, and then uh, share the pork uh, communally. Um, This is just stuff that I'm sure you all know about, um, that urban farming, a lot of people will be like, oh, Novella, you're such a pioneer. And I'm just like, whatever. I'm like, old news. Um, This has been going on forever. Um, These are just, this is some propaganda um, from uh, World War II, where the the USDA would send out things that were like, be patriotic, grow your own food. And people were like, okay, I'll grow my own food. (laughs) And that's great. We should try that, you know. Um, And there's some of that going on. I mean, Michelle is doing a good job. Um, and people are getting really excited about school gardens and um, and that kind of thing. Um, this picture is in front of City Hall um, in San Francisco, where the mayor Gavin Newsom has sort of mandated urban farming as a as something to good that can happen. Um, and so they invo- in, uh, they installed a victory garden in the in the front of the City Hall, which was very cool. Um, and then this is part of just like history is, um, you know, because a lot of times I think what happens with the food movement is people get really, you know, they spin out of control and it's like this whole rarefied Alice Waters thing. Um, You know, and I'm not saying I love Alice, she does good work, Um, but people are forgotten. And one of those people, this is Melvin Dixon here in the bottom, um, carrying the scones there, and he um, was a Black Panther. And he reminded me, I started, I met him and I was um, providing lettuce for their literacy program. Um, And he reminded me that the Black Panthers started the free breakfast program. They started the free lunch program. So they have always had this message of you need good nutrition to learn. Um, And then somehow it's it's just been lost, and they never get credit for that. So I always like to just bring that up. Um, And then as I've been traveling around, I have seen tons of different urban farms, and it's been so cool. Um, I was just in Philadelphia, and I mean, it's insane what they're doing there. If you can ever take a little trip up. Um, and asked to see the urban farms, you'll be amazed. Um, Huge, huge urban farms that are supported by the city, which is really the important thing. I mean, I'm not really supported by the city. I mean, I'm not chased down by the city either, so there's something like that, but um, you know, to have government support is really nice. Um, I've seen farms in Austin, Everywhere, um, and it's been really—it's been really an honor to meet the urban farmers. I did meet an urban farmer from Baltimore here, um, and it's great to hear it's just starting and it's really exciting. Um, and so, uh, I think I'm just gonna—I think I'm gonna just stop, and then you guys can maybe ask questions. I'm sure I forgot to mention a lot of things or something. Uh, thank you. I guess they I think you're supposed to go up there, are you? If you have a question. Let me just pass it Oh, over. great. Okay, cool. Pass it around.
2: So, was it hard to kill the pigs?
0: Yeah, well, it was Did hard. Did you cry? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I cried. Oh, yeah, I cried. Um, was it hard to kill the pigs? I didn't personally kill the pigs. Um, I actually hired an assassin to do it. <laughs> Um, who turned out to be like the worst assassin, you'll have to buy the book and read it. Um, but she was awful and, um, and I really regretted not doing it myself actually um, because I think she just didn't respect what I wanted to do which is that I felt a real connection to these animals and I wanted to be there when they died. Um, and she, didn't, she robbed me of that basically. Um, so it did not turn out well. Um, and I was just so glad and grateful to have Chris Lee, who would then, you know, take something that I felt bad about and turn it into something beautiful. Um, and since then, I've had really interesting conflicted feelings about, um, you know, taking animals to slaughter at all. Um, at one point, I know I promised with the goats I wasn't going to eat anyone, right? But the problem is, is that a lot of times, you know, they'll have males. My, my does will give birth to males. And um, you can't really have a male goat in Oakland. It's actually illegal. Um, and they smell really bad. And they hump everything. Like everything. Um, like chickens and stuff. You're just like, whoa. Um, so it was getting crazy. And so I was like, okay, great. I have to like, deal with this and take my male goat to get slaughtered. Um, and I was really bummed about it. I was going to have to go to a slaughterhouse. Um, and then that night, Bill went over to the liquor store, which is Brothers Market, to buy me a beer. And um, to calm me down. <laughs> and um, the owner of the store, his name is Mossed, he, uh, Bill was telling him about the goats. And Moses was just like, wait a minute. Do you know that I used to be a goat farmer? I, I'm going to come over to your house. I'm going to kill your goat. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, that's the kind of neighborhood feeling I like. So he came over. Um, the next morning, he brought his wife and child because it's a big deal. It's part of their culture is to you know, be part of this thing and see it happen. Um, and His wife sang a really beautiful song when they, when they slaughtered the goat and he just went fast, really fast. And I was just so grateful because I really could not have done that. Um, And then Moses took half, and then I kept half, and it was just such a great thing. And then now, you know, Moses and I are like, buddies, you know, it's super cool. Um, And I always ask him for goat advice because he's obviously more knowledgeable than I am. Um, And so that's been really great. So there have been, I've actually found a way to do the slaughter in a way that I find um, okay. But it's hard. Yes, I'm wondering, how do you... um, I have dogs, and and I'm thinking about getting into vermiculture so that mm. so that I can process the um, droppings. Yeah, <laughs> and and
1: I'm wondering how you process the droppings
0: from all your animals. Oh yeah, well dogs are different, um, and she's talking about vermiculture. That's worms. So like having worms eat eat the poo. Um, yeah, it's different with it's different with um dogs because they're carnivor- they're carnivores. So you have to be like more careful with it. I'm sure you can use worm worm composting to do it though. Um but my compost, I have a lot of it. I have a lot of poo. Um, I just, um, some of the stuff I actually am able to put just directly onto like fruit trees, you know, like the rabbit the rabbit manure is really great for that really good stuff, the chicken has to be um, composted because it's really hot, Um, and then the goat stuff I just put into a big compost pile and so I just harvest that and then use it in my raised beds after it's um, kind of rotted down, so it's actually been really great and then I'm like, hey, this is why farmers had animals, (laughs) you know, because it's really good for the vegetables, Um, so you know, the animals eat the the vegetables that I wouldn't eat, and you know, the goats eat everything. Um, and then we get the, their manure to then grow more vegetables. So it is a really nice cycle. I don't know, I'll have to look up the, the dog poo question. At the end of your book, uh, a developer comes to look at your lot, yeah. and I, that sort of falls through, but eventually it's probably going to be
2: yeah. Indelible. So I'm wondering if maybe with the proceeds of your book, do you have enough money to? Iceland, yeah, or I know, what's your plan
0: well okay what's my plan um i know i found out you can't really make very much money writing books which is sad um <laughs> but also i found out um well what happened is um they did sell the lot the lot does not own is not owned by the same person anymore and that lot was sold for three hundred thousand dollars so i don't have that kind of cash I know, move to Baltimore. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> okay, now, oh, my God. <laughs> I know, right? I'm totally tempted. I'm researching it, okay? I'll be here. I'll see you guys next spring. God. Um, but, no, I seriously might. We'll see what happens. Um, but, anyway, I do love Oakland, though. just—it's really—but But it is getting super gentrified. So to answer your question... My neighborhood. Um, so this lady bought this property for really a lot of money. And then she ended up, you know, um, that, then what happened was the housing uh, bubble totally imploded in, in the Bay Area. So all of a sudden, her property wasn't worth that much. Um, so she actually came, and nobody would support her condo building, which is what she also wanted to do. Everybody in California has a dream, and that is to own a lot and build condos on it. I don't understand it. Um, but there you go. Um, so that was her idea. And, um, and then she actually came to the lot one day, and I didn't know who she was. She, you know, she was looking around, she's like, whose garden is that? I'm like, oh, it's mine. Do you want a tour? And she's like, yeah, I just bought this lot. And I'm like, oh, god. <laughs> and then I always have the same vision, which is like the bulldozers coming. You know, like how am I going to get the trees out? And how am I going to save everything? Um, and you know, she was like, oh, it's fine. No one's going to fund me. It's going to be at least a couple years. But will you do me a favor? Will you plant some tiger lilies and some roses? And, you know, because I love beautiful things. And I was like, okay. And luckily, my downstairs neighbor, Mr. Wynn, had already planted tiger lilies. Um, So (laughs) then when she came back this spring, I was like, here's some tiger lilies, you know. It was perfect. Um, And I asked her, are you going to develop? And she said, not this year. So I'm still on a sort of wait and see basis. Um, And then the other farm I have started with, um, with Abanay, she... We're basically sharecropping from this family. It's a one-acre plot. It's way bigger than what we've ever worked with. Um, And so it's the same exact thing where it's just this really temporary kind of thing. And it is grinding on me. It is hard. Um, And, you know, the Bay Area, eventually I'm just going to be totally priced out and I'll have to move. And then I'll come to Baltimore. (laughs) That's my promise. Yeah. I love that we're sharing a mic. Um, How
2: do you get around the ordinance for roosters because they crow?
0: Yeah roosters roosters they're totally illegal um in oakland and i don't have roosters actually we we will butcher our roosters and make cocoa foam um but the thing is is that they um i mean i i was always like you know i kind of like the roosters and we had neighbors, um, our downstairs neighbor was Mr. Wynn, he would tell me like, I love the rooster singing in the morning. And this is like singing at like 3 a.m., okay? I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? This is horrible. And Bill was like, kill that rooster. So couldn't last. So we had to get rid of the roosters. So most, And I often get a frantic phone call from people who are like, I started keeping chickens because of you, and now I have a rooster. Will you kill it? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have time to be your hired assassin. But I have been teaching people how to kill roosters just so they learn. And, and also it's kind of like this thing that, like maybe, you know, maybe our grandmothers used to do that. And it's sort of this, this thing that is a good skill to have, just in a pinch. Just in a pinch.
1: <laughs> I just wanted to know, because I haven't read the book yet. Uh, is there anything you're doing that is illegal that you can, that you can share with us? Okay. <laughs>
0: All right, this is being podcast. Um, okay, wait, you want to know what I do that's legal or illegal? All right, I'll tell you. Well, in Seattle, I used to grow weed. That's just a total confession. I tell everybody that because I don't do it anymore. And, um, and then when I moved to California, that's totally legal. Um, so then I was like, oh, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's a huge cash crop. Um, most money I ever made farming. Um, but what I do that's slightly illegal, that I'll tell you just between you and I, is I sell my goat milk. That is totally illegal. But I only sell it, if the USDA is listening, to, as pet food. That's the way that you get around it. You're like, your cat is so thirsty. <laughs> Here's two quarts of milk, and that's $16. You know what I mean? So that's, how, that's the one thing that I do. And also, I do occasionally sell rabbit. Um, rabbit meat to people in sort of a down low situation. And they, um, that is actually not regulated by the USDA. And I know because I was visited by agents from the USDA recently. <laughs> It was like, they left this note on my door, like, it says, like, investigators, USDA, call us as soon as possible. (laughs) And I call them, I'm like, what? And they wanted to come over, and they showed me pictures. It was like 1984. They're like, is this you killing this goat? You know? And I'm like... What? How'd you guys get these? I mean, of course, it was like on the website. I have a blog. I mean... (laughs) This is like the details in 1984 that weren't really cleared up, is that everybody just has a camera in their house all the time, and they like it. Um, So, yeah, so I had this blog, so I published those things. But I was clear to them that I never sold that meat to anybody, and so that's what makes it legal. So I'm okay. Yeah. That's pretty much the only bad thing I do. I mean, we have a gray water system. We use water that comes from our sink um, that goes then into the garden and waters all the trees, and that's not a legal system. Like, there's no... Um, if some inspector came they would probably I would get in trouble for it that's the other thing it's like a confessional I love it <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh, yeah stuff? I guess I'm, I haven't read the book so I'm assuming that um, you mentioned that the lot was sold to this woman but she hasn't developed so I'm assuming that when you started this, doing this is I mean did you get permission or did you Oh right, I forgot to mention that. Well yeah, and I'm just curious because obviously mm-hmm. it's you don't own it and um, right. and it's a temporary thing. Mm. So all the work and you know, oh, I know. blood, sweat I and thinking? tears and then and then somebody can come along and just you know totally. But, you know, it's true, Uh, yeah, and that was what I, you know, initially when we started, we didn't ask permission. We were like, I wonder who owns a lot, and then we're like, oh, well, (laughs) we're not, like, we're not going to go issue, like, a FOIA and find out who, you know, who owns that lot, you know. We're not going to go do research, and so it started off really small, and then every year we would just do a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, until it got bigger and bigger. And I should mention that the animals are, for the most part, except for the bees and sometimes um, ducks, they're in the backyard, so they're hi- they're hidden from view, and you know, so it's mostly vegetables out in the squat lot. But you're right; it is a lot of work, and we've been doing it for seven years now, um, and so and you know I remember there were times constantly that they were gonna do something with the lot develop it and so I'd stop gardening for a while and then I just couldn't resist I had to go back out there and and then I sort of started to think of it as a metaphor for life right like everything is temporary right isn't it and so if I had this chance right now in the Oakland sunlight why would I not just go for it so so I just did Yeah. so she's curious how I sort of deal with um, the fact that the farm will be gone and vegetable, because I do have I have, fruit, I have mature fruit trees at this point now, um, but I'm always like, "Damn, I got mature fruit trees!" You know, that's pretty cool. If I if I was always like, "Oh, I'm gonna wait till I have the property," you know, then I wouldn't have those fruit trees. Um, and so that's sort of my thing is like, just do it now. It just feels like you just have to. Um, and I've also left farms in Seattle I mean I've left mature fruit trees in Seattle too and I've gone back and I've been like what, why is no one picking these raspberries these are ready to go you know so <laughs> it's like this great feeling actually to just feel like you just feel really full you're like wow I've like bomb you know I've put my little bomb everywhere you know it's a great feeling <laughs> yeah Up here. Okay. Um, I raised well we raised
2: chickens what's cool. your of the chickens that you've raised how many well what breed is your favorite
0: oh my favorite breed well, my favorite you know chickens in the city are interesting because my fav- my favorite breed is actually buff orpingtons, which are what I consider like the Marilyn Monroe of chicken they 're like blonde and they have this big red comb and just gorgeous fluffy butts um, But they have diarrhea of the mouth. They are loud. They're always, like, talking about something going on. You're like, shut up, you know? Especially when your neighbors are, like, right there and they're trying to enjoy their coffee or something. Um, And so my favorite urban chicken is the Australorp, which is this big black chicken that has kind of green feathers and is really, really quiet. Um, and so docile and so just wonderful, wonderful birds. So that's my favorite chicken. But I also like bantams, which are like the little versions of little chick of chickens, and they're just hilarious. They're super fun to watch.
2: Um, in regards to raising bees, what sort of uh, space or sunlight requirements do you need? Okay,
0: Okay. so bees, um, they do need sun. If you have them in complete shade, they'll die because it just gets too moldy and and gnarly in there. Um, And they're constantly trying to keep warm, especially in the winter. Um, So they're kind of like clustered around each other and the queen at all times. Now here in Baltimore where it gets warm... Um, you want to have some kind of shade actually for the bees if you have them in full sun um, because they'll actually just get so hot you'll see the bees they'll go outside and they'll fan their wings because they're cooling down the hive and if they spend too much of their time doing that they're not going to be collecting nectar so you don't get as much honey but literally you could have bees and i've done this um, I have a deck that's about the size of this stage, and I had bees out there, and that was t- plenty, r- plenty of room. Enough room that you could, t- you know, work with the hive. So, you know, don't put it in some crazy place where you can't access it. You do have to take the box off and, you know, check things out and pull the honey out and all that stuff. But really, this is, this is just plenty of space. Let's, I mean, let's start a beehive right here. Oh, wait, no, sorry. <laughs>
2: I had a question. Um, uh-huh. So I'm sure Oakland... Uh, like Baltimore, has its share of rats. Oh, yeah. And so I'm wondering, how, how does an urban gardener deal, deal with that? In a, I mean, I, that's what's kept me from sort of doing a full-blown project in our backyard because mm-hmm. I realized that there are rats just like a lot of cities. And so...
0: Yeah. And you're worried about them eating the food or just being dirty. Every, every, everything. Okay. Well, I mean, it's kind of uh anywhere where humans are, there are rats. I mean, if you go out even to like the most bucolic farm, you're like, "Whoa, what's been chewing on that pumpkin?" They have rats too. So just I just don't I just want to like erase yeah. the pastoral fantasy that there are not rats in the country. Um but There are ways to avoid them. One is to not do food composting. That was the biggest lesson that I've learned recently. I walked out to go do, to add, um, you know, I have a bucket in the kitchen of of food waste. I went out to, like, go dump it. And a rat, full daylight, runs out to greet me because he's like, (laughs) cool, dinner time and I'm like oh my god I'm like a horrible person I'm like breeding more more rats in the city and so I stopped completely but we have a municipal compost system um, so they take it away and then we can actually collect the compost later on the back end from them um, so that's a great that's a good system for me the other thing is is that if you have chickens, um, then you don't want to leave a bunch of feed out for them um, because that will attract rats faster than anything. They love the smell of chicken feed, um, and they also love hay so, or straw or anything like that. So you just want to keep everything really clean so you're not creating a habitat for the rats and then not have a bunch of chicken food everywhere. Um, and keep that usually i just recommend keeping it in your house you just feed the chickens until for 15 minutes in the morning and in the evening and then put the food away just so it doesn't attract rats and then you know i love rat traps (laughs) it's like i feel like charbonneau coming out to inspect my traps (laughs) um to see what i got that night before um but you know it's just a way to yeah yeah, I've heard of rats eating vegetables, um, like tomatoes and things, and that is a major problem, and I think you just really have to hit them hard in the spring and find where they're living, because a lot of times, like, mine were actually living in the compost pile like, and making babies, and then I would find these, like, they're actually kind of cute. I should have took a picture, but um, they're, like, these little tiny rat babies, and then I was like, oh, you know who's going to like These are the chickens, and the chickens, <laughs> they, like, <laughs> lost their minds. They were so psyched. Um, So, I know, that's my life. Can you believe it? It's a full circle. (laughs) Full circle. Um, You actually mentioned 4 H, and I grew up in 4 H. Uh, Mm. I was actually in in the suburbs, and I raised rabbits and chickens in the suburbs two acres with woods, but luckily we were close enough and far enough away from our neighbors that they didn't really disturb them so much, but yeah. did you, where did you go for your resources to, to learn more? Did you ever think about showing your rabbits or chickens or pigs or taking to the, the state fair? I know, I should do that. Yeah. I should totally do that. Uh, my resources were mostly books you know i'm a total bookworm and so i would um i would study up on these books you know old archaic books about you know like goat husbandry the the best book on the subject is like a hundred years old um so i love i love reading books and and somewhat um just meeting different people who've had experience like you you know i would be like hey how did you kill your rabbits or you know, would ask like all those questions so people in the neighborhood, especially from different countries, would have all this insight in raising animals. Um, And so that was a great resource as well. Let's see, there was another part to your question, though. Oh, am I going to show the animals? So one of the funny things about buying goats is that everyone who, sh- who sells goats, goat breeders, are into showing them. And I'm just like, why? But I'm sure that there will be a time, because every time I'm like, why? And then the next thing I know, I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> is that I'm going to be in that ring with that goat and making her behave. So we'll see. I need to work on my milk lines. I need to get my champion doe going, you know, and then we'll see. What did your neighbors think about what you were doing. Uh, well, the neighbors are interesting um, because they, um, they're they very tolerant of me. You know, it's amazing. And some of it is because it's a little bit of a rough neighborhood. So some of my neighbors are prostitutes and drug dealers. And so then we would be like, you're a prostitute, you're a drug dealer. I'm a, ur- a smelly urban farmer. What's the problem? You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> Can't we work this out? Um, and also because a lot of my neighbors are from different countries, and so they're totally used to it. My landlord, um, Wilfred, he's from Africa, and he, when he saw the pigs, he was just like, "Oh well," <laughs> you know. <laughs> he was like, "Is that there's something weird about that?" He didn't, you know, he just didn't really question it. Um, to his credit, I love him. Like, that's awesome. Um, and so that was, that was kind of how that was, you know. And, and a lot of the, you know, like the Vietnamese people who live in my neighborhood, like the Buddhist monks that live across the street, they are from the country. They have more farm experience than I do. You know, when the pigs would escape, they'd be like, okay, Novella, here's how you herd a pig, you know. <laughs> and so that was, it was very instructive. Um, but And I did have one complaint about the smell of the pigs at the very end because that was fragrant. And I can't believe no one didn't complain before. Um, and I think people are just kind of live and let live.
2: This is not a question. This is a, a no, song sorry. of praise. Oh. Uh, I have read the book and uh, was raised with my fingers in the soil. So there's an immediate connection. I just want to heartily recommend that anyone here who hasn't read the book, purchase the book outside, no. help you develop the resources to hang on to your piece of land. Uh, The the lighthearted presentation that you've presented today, Novella, certainly does not begin to really do justice to the feeling and passion which you have for the subject matter, the life you shared. She has an extensive bibliography and delves into the history of food, not just Oakland, but the depths from around the world and just a remarkable set of people she met in this journey and the depth and feeling and passion you have is just to be commended, and I, I want to heartily recommend this book for anyone who cares at all about growing things and love for growing things.
1: Thank you.): That's your father,
0: right? I know, Dad, thanks for coming out. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I'll pay you later. I'll see you. I'll have a small baggie for you.
2: I got a little misty.
0: <laughs> no, really. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And it's true. I do ha- try to have fun, and the book does have deeper themes. Thank you so much for saying that. It's really sweet. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You mentioned selling produce to the literacy program. I'm wondering if you yeah. can live off of what mm. the income from what you sell, or if you can come close, or if you can imagine... What would need to happen for you be, to be able to make that kind of income? Yeah, well, I never sold produce to the literacy program. I brought, it was like a volunteer thing. Um, but what I've started now is a pop up farm stand. And so, and this is sort of illegal too. Um, so, <laughs> I have like a Twitter account and I have an email list and a blog and so I'll send out this thing like hey I'm selling stuff this weekend and so people will show up and buy and buy food and it's okay I mean I can, I make like maybe $150 um, and part of it is because of the book, has, you know Bill was like, I'm like you know it's not so hard being a farmer, I just sold all that chard and I made all that money and then Bill's like you know they're just here because of the book <laughs> and I'm like oh dang it but you know so it's still really hard um, and I think that anybody who was like, I'm going to start making money by selling food in the city, um, it, you would definitely have to specialize. You have to have a cash crop. And I know some people that are um, doing a microgreens program, like a lettuce salad greens, and they're, that's all they grow. That's you know, pretty much it. And they're able to uh, pay a salary of $10 an hour to two people. And so they make it work. Um, and there's another place when I was in Philly I went and saw greens grow um, which if you're ever there you should go it's really interesting because she figured out she wanted to urban farm and make and sell microgreens and just make a living as an urban farmer um, and then she figured out that that's just not you have to diversify um, and so now she sells plant starts they teach classes and so you really have to just like do a whole diverse um, sort of thing and the other thing is, is like as an urban farmer I mean like any farmer most farmers have other jobs Um, So I just, you know, I have other part-time jobs. But it's hard. It's hard to make a living farming.
1: I think we're going to take one more question. Okay. Yeah, one more. Um, A group of us in our neighborhood have started a guerrilla gardening project, and we've taken over a lot and have planted some things. Tilled the soil, cut up the sod, and now the grass is coming back. Mm. Do you have any recommendations on how to prevent it from coming back? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, well, there's a couple things. I, see, I, I've always only done um, stuff on concrete, you know, pads or something. So that's just bear that in mind. Um, but I've seen successful garden uh, grass suppression, and it really involves what's, uh, you know, making like a lasagna garden or uh, what is also called sheet mulching. So you did the right thing. You tilled up all the grass. You got rid of it. But then, in addition to that, you need to put down tons of cardboard, newspaper, straw carbonaceous material and then add compost to that or your whatever soil that you happen to get on top of that and that layer which is like a foot thick is going to stop the grass from ever growing again however if you have that crabgrass which is horrible with It's riot. Bermuda grass. Oh, it is. Oh, you're screwed. <laughs> you're screwed. Is there uh-huh. no hope? There's no hope. You, I mean, one thing you could I mean, you could try that. You can sheet mulch, but you'll have to do it every single year because the stuff will want it wants to live and I've always been a fan of organic gardening, like forever, like I love organic gardening, I would never want to spray anything or use fertilizers or pesticides and, and I had a friend that, it's funny she moved to Austin, Texas from Bay, Bay Area, and I was like, how did you get rid of your Bermuda grass? She's like, oh yeah, I got some Roundup, and I just <laughs> coated it, just one strong blast of Roundup and I'm not saying to use Roundup, but honestly, it's going to be really hard, but you did, you did the hard work, and, and so maybe you can salvage it, I'm not sure though
1: Okay, and for chickens, mm-hmm. can they can we feed them table scraps, or do they need special chicken feed?
0: Yeah, you need to feed them at least some chicken feed, because it's going to contain all the minerals and nutrients that they need to lay eggs. Um, and then the scraps are just, um, they can supplement the main food, but you don't want to give them moldy food or things like citrus or onions or cabbage, anything that has like a sulfur in it, because it'll make the eggs taste gross. But yeah, you can feed them tons of scraps, you know, rice and bread and, you know, your vegetables. They love fr- Fruit, rotten fruit. So I have about a quarter of the book left, okay. but I am insanely curious for an update about your friend, the car squatter. Oh, Bobby, I know. Um, okay, so Bobby is one of the characters in the book, and he um, is a dear friend, um, and he's, he was homeless. And um, he stopped being homeless. He eventually um, moved into his daughter's apartment. And he would call me and we'd talk and stuff. And he'd say, I can't take it, this living indoors thing. Um, And so he eventually ended up back on the streets. um, But he has a friend who he found who allows him to stay at his property, um, you know, kind of like in a tent kind of thing. Um, and, you know, what I didn't realize about Bobby is that, you know, he served in the war. You know, he had been really traumatized by that. Um, so, anyway, he's living in this in this guy's yard and working for him, too. So, he's great. He came by. I had some high schoolers one day just out for a tour. Um, and, um, and Bobby came. And they were all like, Bobby! And he's like, whoa! I mean... <laughs> You know, he's read the book, but he's, you know, he didn't expect that. And people were just so excited to talk to him. And I actually read one of the high schoolers, like, reports about it, about the trip to my farm. And they were like, it was really cool. And then they're like, and Bobby didn't seem as weird as she (laughs) So, like, he's not, I'm the weird one, okay? So just just clearing the record on that. Novella, thank you so much for coming to Baltimore. It's been wonderful. (laughs)